Let's just pray as we get into the word this morning. So, Father, we just thank you for your word in Jesus' name. I thank you for how precious it is. Father, I thank you this isn't a, a document written by man, but it's, it's, it's inspired by you, Lord God, and inspired in the Greek means out of the very breath of, breathed by God. So, Father, I thank you for it. May we take it at its authority. May we apply it by all its promises. May we shield ourselves inside it, Lord God. May you impress it upon our hearts so that we would be equipped with this sword in our hand. So, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, well, when we did the mentoring on Monday, uh, we did it about weaknesses. Now, there's two types of weakness that we carry. There's weaknesses like me being deaf. It's a weakness in my life, and sometimes it gets in the way of what I want to do. But it's not a sin, but it is a weakness. And then there's other weaknesses in our lives that might be a sin, okay, where we lose our temper or we've got a bad attitude or uh, so on and so forth, whatever it is. And, and sin encroaches, we might be jealous, we might be frustrated with others, uh, so on and so forth. So there's two types of weaknesses. There's weaknesses that are not sinful, necessarily, and there's weaknesses that highlight our sin. So this morning, I'm carrying on that kind of theme, overcoming our weaknesses, overcoming our weaknesses. It's vital for each one of us to judge ourselves soberly and know our weaknesses and the sin that we wrestle with. And Paul spoke about wrestling with sin, okay? And so it's important to judge ourselves soberly. And sometimes uh, we don't judge ourselves soberly. And when we don't judge ourselves soberly, we can make mistakes. I don't know if you remember this advert a few years ago, and it showed people going out on a Saturday night, a lot of young people out drinking, and one of them is dressed in a superhero's outfit. And they're all larking about, but this one character's got a superhero outfit on. Because in his drunkenness, that's how he sees himself. And he climbs up this scaffold, and then, in his delusion of being a superhero, he jumps. And he gets wiped out. Because he wasn't really a superhero. Because he was drunk, he saw himself that way. And what's very important is to judge yourself soberly without condemning yourself. Okay? Without condemnation. And a lot of the time, we can't do it. We don't judge ourselves soberly because it makes us feel bad about ourselves. And we don't want to feel bad about ourselves, so we make up excuses. It was the other driver who cut me up. And if they didn't cut me up, I wouldn't have given them the finger. So it's not really my fault. And Adam was the first one to invent it. He said, well, Lord, it's this woman you gave me. And she came with an apple. And if she didn't get... Do you see what I mean? And Adam wasn't judging the situation soberly. 
And the reason we don't do it is because we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. Because we can't separate our behaviour from our security in Christ. And we, we marry our security in Christ dependent upon our attitude and our behaviour. Okay? And that's not scriptural. Our security in Christ is because of him, not because of you. That's why you, when you were dead in your sins, he died for you. You don't get brownie points in that respect. He's not right with you one minute and off with you the next. That's called the wife. No, that's called, you know, he's not. He is constant with you. He loves you irrespective of your behaviour and your attitude. It doesn't fluctuate like the income rate and interest rates. It doesn't go up and down. It is set permanently by the cross. Unchanging. The cross has set it. So, if you can grasp that, when you judge yourself soberly, you won't then go all like that. But because we're not totally secure and we're looking at behaviour and kind of almost earning his love or he loved me more this week because I've been a bit better, we fluctuate. When you're secure in Christ, you will learn to face your weaknesses when you're secure because it will not affect your opinion of yourself. You know, we've all got different weaknesses that we carry and areas of sin that we struggle with. The, that's not the end of the world because that has been bought and paid for at the cross. That only becomes a danger when we're not willing to confront it. We're not willing to judge ourselves soberly. I made that mistake irrespective of the circumstances. I shouldn't have reacted that way irrespective of those around me. I made a mistake. I just simply made the wrong decision. I didn't research enough. I didn't think enough. I, would, I, I, I put the cart before the horse. I was impatient. I just did it because I want, you know. And when we can do that and we can say that, that's judging ourselves soberly. But we're not to condemn ourselves. But when we can face our weaknesses and say that and give it to the Lord, it's such liberation. And that's why Paul said, if I boast in anything, it's my weaknesses I'm going to boast in. I'm going to tell everybody what a sinner I am. I'm going to tell them about my weaknesses because they're going to look and they say, well, there must be a God. Because look at his heart. Look at his this, look at his that. Look at his... There must be a God. And he said, if I boast in anything, I boast in my weaknesses so that Christ will be glorified. Amen? So our weaknesses, we don't have to avoid them. And we're much healthier if we confront them. You know, I mean, me and Mara, we, we, for probably about five years into our marriage, we did this thing where uh, maybe once every three or four months, we'd go to bed and we'd sit up and we'd go, right, where am I going wrong? And she'd say, right, I've got the list. And she'd get a toilet roll. No, she'd turn around and say, right, you had a bad attitude with the kids because of X, Y, and Z. You were impatient because of this. And she would share where I 
was dropping the ball. Now, you've got to be in covenant relationship, because I can't look at that and go, what a cow. Right, will you wait till I get my turn? Go on, carry on, and have revenge. No, it's a covenant relationship, and you're there for each other. So she should tell me these things. Some I would agree with. Some, maybe I haven't seen it. I said, well, I didn't see that, but okay. And then the role changes. Then I'd do it to her. And then, before we went to sleep, we'd pray for each other, you know? Because we're a team. And if you can have covenant relationships where you know people love you, there's no agenda, they want God's best for you, they're the people you need to get alongside you to help you in your weaknesses. Okay? That's where the body of Christ comes in. So, Matthew 7 verse 3, Matthew 7 verse 3 says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrites! First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, some of us haven't got a plank. We've got the Amazon jungle in our eye. You know, we've got a forest going on. Forget a plank. And it's so easy to see other people's faults. Because, and not our own, because we won't judge ourselves soberly. See, when someone's drunk, everything goes out of perspective. It loses reality. Was driving home in her little car. She's got one that's got a smart car. She's been out for the night, got a little smart car, and she's had a lovely evening. She drives home. Well, wonderful. Brilliant. Was another time, as a little bit too sherbet. She gets in now. She gets in now to the smart car, but in Rosie's brain, it's become an Aston Martin. And all of the sudden, she. You know, Things change when we're drunk. You, you see it. Suddenly the ugliest man in the world thinks he's a Casanova. You know? My dad, my dad was six foot nine, about 29 stone. And whenever he got a little bit tipsy and he had a huge belly, well not huge, maybe like that. But if ever he got a bit tipsy, he'd always say, oh, I'm lovely, I am. Call your mother, she's lucky to have a man like me you know, and, and he'd tap it, and my mum would look at it and say, great big fat lump of lard, it's disgusting, honest, that's what she used to say to him, and he'd go, bought and paid for though, love, bought and paid for, and why do men get away with that, if a woman turned around to her husband and said, well look at that, lovely wobbly, bought and paid for, love, bought and paid for, yeah, exactly. The, the, the husband would be saying, what, you can't say that? What are you doing? But if you don't judge yourself soberly, you will not live rationally. You will be irrational because you won't judge yourself soberly and you will make rash decisions. Okay? So the key, we must live soberly. We need to acknowledge areas of weakness in our life so that we can overcome them. And we overcome them by the Word. Amen? By walking, living, and applying the Word in our life. 
We need to be equipped so that our weaknesses do not lead us into sin. But rather have a greater dependency on God. Some of us don't even admit our weaknesses to God. And he knows them all. He knows them. He knew them before you did them. He knew them. But yet we come to God kind of trying to say, well, well, like Adam did, well, it's not really me, it's the woman. You know? We kind of go to God saying, well, you know, if that circumstances that hadn't have happened, and if you'd provide for me, I wouldn't have had to have done. You, do you know what I mean? And we don't even go to God with a sober, pure heart to say, you know, just as I come without a plea, I need the blood of Jesus washed over me. I just, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I have sinned. I've fallen, I've mucked it up again. You give me a gazillion chances, and after every one, I say, that's it, never happen again. Do, 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 mighty mouse, mighty Christian, never going to fall on that again. Get out of the way, you idiot. And it, you know, but we've got to go to God realistically, honestly, and openly. Now, King David is a powerful demonstration of some of these points I'm making. He was known as a mighty king over Israel. He was a righteous man who truly loved God. And sometimes we, it can have, I don't know about you, but when I've sinned and I've struggled in a certain area, I then question myself, well, do I really love God? Or do I love him as much as I want or as much as I think I love him? And we can call the whole relationship between you and the Father can become a bit insecure because you've laughed up and now you think, well, maybe I don't really love him the way I want to. That's the voice of the enemy. Okay? Rip down that stronghold immediately. Don't let the voice come in. Acts 13.22 says, And God raised up for them David as a king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Hang on a minute, hang on, you can't say that really, can you? Because he naffed it all up and he sinned. And you knew that he was going to sin when you made that statement. So how can you say as a man after your own heart? Well, he's God and he can. Because David was a man after his own heart, but he was an imperfect man. It also says that David served God's purpose in his own generation. Okay then, 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. It happened in the spring of that year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David said to Joab, his servant, with him and to all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, so, problem number one. So the first problem that comes in, it says it happened in the spring of that year at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab. Now the problem is, when the kings go out to battle, and God had already said David was a man of war, 
David wasn't at the place he should have been. He was a king, he was a man of war, and he should have been out at battle. And he wasn't out at battle. Okay? Make sure you're in the right place and the right circumstance. Okay? Because if you're in the wrong place and the wrong circumstances, you're going to get caught out. Okay? And David, for whatever reason, made a crazy decision. I'm not going to war. I'm not going to go to war. And he wasn't, at that point, fulfilling the purpose of God. And he became distracted. Then it happened one evening that David rose up from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. He should have been at battle. He should have been at battle and he wouldn't have seen a woman bathing because he would have been on the battlefield doing what he was called to do. And even in my own life, when I've got distracted, when I look back, I can think, I've got distracted, I can say, I wasn't flowing in my calling of what God had called me to do. I'd become distracted. Okay? And sometimes, like Revelation says, repent from your sin, look how far you have fallen, go and do what you did at first. Get back to what you did at first. Go to default. When the old computer went wrong, you just press the default button and it reset all the settings back to what they, the factory setting. And sometimes you've got to press the default button, you've got to go back to default or do what you did at first. That's the answer. What did I do? I loved the, God, the Lord God with all my heart. I had nothing, I had pittance. But you know what? I was happy, I was on fire for God and I trusted him in it all. Do what you did at first. Sometimes it's very difficult because the things in life become distractions. And we get distracted and they chew into our lives and take up more and more time and more and more distractions sometimes. And sometimes less is more in the kingdom of God. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Curiosity killed the cat. Don't open the door because you'll end up walking through it. That's what sin does. There's a temptation. There's a little seed felt. There's a little glimpse. There's a little something. You can see something through the crack and you think, well, I'm not, I'm not, just, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to have a look. I'm just going to have a look. You know, security guards aren't around. It could be an intruder. I'll just have a little look. And you get sucked in. A bit like Mara with the biscuits in at home. I'll just have a little look. Oh, they're not for me. Oh, no, no, no. I bought them for you, my love. I bought them for Luke. I say, really? Because I've noticed a little bit of a claim. Because every time you buy them for me, you seem to eat them all. Confirmation. You heard that giggle there. Confirmation. Ricky bought me some chocolate for my birthday. Ricky bought me chocolates for my birthday. But I did not get to see, touch or taste them. Because the gap, no, because my lovely wife said, I'm just having one. You can't have just one of anything, love. You have to polish the entire packet. Kids are growing up. There's two for you, Leah, two for Luke, two for Caleb, 
Dad probably won't want any, any. and uh, I'll put the rest in the special mum cupboard. And she eats the lot. And then she's like a five-year-old because she can walking in the room and she's got all the crumbs everywhere. All the evidence is over her face. And she said, you all right? Walking in with a carrot. Are you all right? I said, yes, love, but I can see all the crumbs around your face. You and your fake carrot. But what we do, that temptation's there and we start off looking through the door and it gets bigger and bigger and before we know it, we're sucked in. Don't go on the roof. Don't go on it. Don't go on it. Don't be tempted to go on the roof. Just stay away from it. When you know there's a potential conflict with somebody else and you're already angry and ticked off about it, don't deal with it. Wait until you're calm and you're relaxed and you, it, it's lost that anger that you've got and then you won't sin. You can be angry, Scripture says, don't sin in your anger. You can be angry about a situation, but don't sin in it, okay? Or angry with someone. And somebody said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he's made an inquiry and the, the message has come back not available. If it was Facebook today, it would have said in a relationship. Okay? Not available. But David learned that this woman was from a notable family. A noble family. Her father was Elam. One of David's mighty men. Her dad was one of David's mighty men. Her grandfather was one of David's chief counsellors. Wow. So her dad is one of David's mighty men. Her granddad is one of David's chief counsellors. And her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was also listed as being one of David's mighty men, of which there were 37 in total. Wow. Now that blew me away. I didn't realise that before. The, the, what, the, the father and the husband were listed as David's mighty men. And the grandfather was one of his counsellors. Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and lay, he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, I am with child. Now, this happened despite David having multiple wives. He already had multiple wives. And there was a weakness in David in this area of physical beauty or lust. There was a weakness there. And he didn't protect himself against the weakness. He played it into its hand and the same as many of us, he wanted to. At that moment in time, he could have shut the door, but he didn't. Instead of confessing his sin and getting before God, David then hearing that she's pregnant, 
decides to deal with the matter himself. Now, it's far better to go to God and ask God to deal with it than you trying to sort out the mess, because you're the one what got yourself in the mess anyway in the first place. Okay, so it's better to step back from it and say, well, I'm taking my hands off. But sometimes we give it to God and we say, I'm taking my hands off. But then we walk round here and say, oh, well, I just had this idea. If we just did this, that, and the other, did it, and our hands are back on it again. Okay? So David should have just given, gave it, fell on his knees and said, Lord, I've sinned. At that point. Okay? That's what he should have done. But he begins to try and manipulate the situation. Verse 6. Then David said to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was doing, how it was proceeding. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, and he did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, you did not come from your journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. At that point, David should have said, Lord, you, you've got me. You've got me. I mean, David must have been pulling his hair out. He's set all this up is manipulating in the background. Any man who's been at war for this long wants a comfortable bed. He wants a decent meal and he wants to have sex with his wife. And David plans the whole thing for him. But God is not going to be manipulated by David. He's not going to let David do it. And the trouble is, sometimes you can take on man, but when you begin to take on God, you've got a whole new problem. And sometimes we try taking on God in our situations. We think we're dealing with man. He thought he was dealing with man, but he wasn't. He was dealing with God. Because he had gone past the point where he should have repented and dealt dealt with the situation. And David's probably thinking, oh, I've got this sorted out, da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, there's, McDonald's is on the way, there's a bottle of wine already there, there's new pillars on the bed, they're going to have a great time, I'm off the hook, she's up the duff, by her husband, cushy, cushy, we all carry on. Lovely. And when the Hittite was saying to him, when your wife was saying, well, you know, how can I sleep in the with my, in, in, the, in my house, when the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent, David probably said, forget about the Ark, it's all right, mate. Ark hasn't been at war. You, you all right? Go on, enjoy yourself. Knock yourself out. Or so on, so forth, and encouraged him. And David must have been draining. And when, when he turned around and said, I will never do such a thing, the conviction David must have felt in his heart 
In this exchange, we can see Uriah is a godly man, a man of integrity, upright character. And we see why is noted amongst David's mighty men. Amen? Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, until the next day. Then David called him and ate and drank before him. And he made him drunk. And that evening he went out and lay on his bed with his servants of his Lord. And he did not go down to his own house. So David's attempt number two, the first one has failed. He got him an Uber, he got him a pizza in advance, he got the wine, he built new bed sheets, everything set, and he won't go. The second time he said, well, get him drunk. If I can get him drunk, I'm sorted. Because I'll get him drunk and they'll have a few too many and they'll want to go home and have a bit of your father with the missus. So that'll be sorted. I'll get him drunk and he gets in the finest wine and gets him sloshed up, thinking, excellent, he's going to go home, sleep with Bathsheba and then my sin will be covered. No one's going to find out. And instead, instead he goes down and he sleeps on the floor outside the house with the servants. Maybe David miscalculated and he was just too drunk. And he didn't know where he was going. It was all over the place. I don't know. But for whatever reasons, he doesn't do it. And David attempts to cover an adulterous affair with Uriah's wife. And it was failing at every time. It was David who was foolish to go about the situation this way. He became underhanded. And he began to scheme and manipulate. And the, as the problem lasted, David's behaviour grew more and more sinister. See, if we will repent, if we will admit our faults and repent, that's it. That sin is cut off. There's no more life in it. It's dealt with. But when we don't, it's still got life. And that parasite of sin grips onto something else in your life and then something else in your life. And then it begins to change your behaviour. And David's behaviour has changed. David and his mighty men, they were in covenant. They were close, they were winning the battles, there, there was not any relationship uh, in, in an army what was like this. And David is now forsaking all those relationships and he's desperate to get out of something that he's got himself into. He probably now regrets ever sleeping with the woman in the first place. But he will not judge himself soberly. And sin is breeding sin, is breeding sin, is lying, is manipulating, is becoming more and more sinister, rather than going to God. When my children were little, I used to say to them, kids, if you do something wrong, you come, you tell me, it's sorted. You might get a little smack, you might not. But it's there, it's finished. If you do something wrong and you lie to me, let me tell you, whatever you've done is nowhere near as bad as the lie. Whatever it is, I don't care what you do, because you're human, 
But if you lie to me, you have just forfeited everything. You have blown it. And the lie will be bigger than the problem. So it's much better to just come up and say, Dad, I've made a mistake, I did this, I'm stupid, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we deal with it, we move on. And God is the same, you know? We go to God and what? he's a God of grace and love. He loves us. He's not there waiting for us to screw up, thinking, God, screw up so I can send a lightning bolt. Screw up so that I can ruin your life. Screw up so I can get you. If, if that's not the God we serve. He's the God who's wanting, willing, waiting, saying, look to me, turn to me. I'm the one. I can help you. And we say, yeah, but I don't deserve it. I'm in filthy rags. He said, yes, and that's why the blood of Jesus was shed, so you can come to me. Hallelujah. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. How sinister. He gives the letter to Uriah himself to ensure that it would get to Joab. Because he trusts Uriah. He's a godly man. He's a man of integrity. And David's thinking, well, I've got to get this letter to Joab. Who can I trust? Who's a man of integrity? Who will have the guts to walk through the thickness of the fight and the battle and give this letter for me to Joab? That's you are. He's that man of integrity. What? So Uriah takes his own death warrant to be executed over him by his commander-in-chief and he faces all the problems getting it to Joab only to find out, well, no, he doesn't find out, only to be killed. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people and of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite also fell and died. Wow. David's sin has escalated and escalated and escalated. It started with a little glint in the eye. Oh, that's pretty. Well, it started before that. It should be at war should be on the battlefield with his men, the champion who had slain Goliath. And now he's wandering around, bored in the palace. And sometimes, be careful, don't let your walk with God become boring. You will fall into sin. Don't let your walk with God become boring. Keep it active, keep it alive, keep it vibrant. The same as your relationship if you're married. You know, people used to say to me when we first got married, oh, well, you've got the fireworks now, but give it six months, three months, maybe two, a week if you've got my wife. But then fireworks, they won't last long. They go out and then, and then you are in the drudgery of marriage. <laughs> and it, it's like a death warrant. And that's what people talk like. 
But it doesn't have to be that way. Be spontaneous. Think of new things. Do new things together. Think of your partner and think, do you know what? This, this wife of mine stuck with me till the day she dies. I've at least got to give her an interesting ride because she's that committed to me. I've at least got to make her life interesting. I've at least got to entertain her if nothing else, you know, because she's committed to me, you know, and, that's, and also for the wife, you know. So often you oh, the old man, yeah, being from work soon, the fat old slug, pulling himself through the door, you know, and all this sort of thing. No, no. Women function on love and men function on respect. And if there is love and respect in a marriage, it will be a good marriage. When love dies or respect dies, you've got problems. And if you find yourself in that place, some people are hard to love at times, you know. I've used this, you know, my wife can be like a gremlin. She's lovely sometimes, other times, man alive. She ain't the woman that you see on the morning sitting on the front row. I mean, she's like... No, but do you know what I mean? But do you know what? You love the good with the bad because you love the person inside, not the circumstances that has annoyed them or whatever it is. So this account is a serious warning to all of us. David, the great man of God, become willfully entangled in such a web of sin, he should have remained humble and vigilant of the danger and the allure of sin. But because David got his priorities wrong. Now, was it actually a sin for him not to go to battle? Not necessarily. He was king. He was the lawmaker. But sometimes you still make the wrong choice. Sometimes it's not a matter of sin. It's just, you know what, that is not the best choice. And it led to sin. But the, the actual thing sometimes, you haven't sinned. And you convince yourself that we're not sin. I'm not sinning. Now, when you have that conversation with yourself, just surrender at that point, just give it up, just say, oh, I know I'm a sneaky little git, fine, and walk away from it. His priorities become wrong. He becomes tempted and he gives in to temptation, which leads to adultery, deceit, and eventually murder, a murderer of an innocent man. To add insult to injury, instead of repenting from the sin, he makes Bathsheba his wife adding her to the multiple wives he'd already got. And it's unlikely that Bathsheba ever knew that David had arranged the death of her husband. She'd just be naive to it all their lives. At the end of the chapter, we see this powerful statement, and it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord and it said was evil in the sight of the Lord so David had a heart after God a heart after God's own heart but yet was still capable of displeasing the Lord I don't think it was just this big sin 
If you actually study David, David rebelled on several occasions, several times he didn't do what the Lord told him to do, or what he should have done. In the following verses, the Lord sends Nathan, who was the prophet to the nation, to David. And Nathan shares with David a parable of a rich man who had a great abundance of sheep. Yet, he chose to take a sheep from a poor man and prepare it for the feast. And this arose anger in David. So Nathan's gone to see David and said, David, how do you feel about this scenario? There's a bloke, he's loaded, he's got loads of sheep, fat sheep, skinny sheep, good-looking sheep, ugly sheep, black sheep, white sheep, in-between sheep. He's got every sheep you can think of and he even looks sheepish. Okay, he's proper sheeped out, he's got everything, and there's the bloke down the road, he's just got one. And his sheep, the, the, the man with all the sheep, don't really love his sheep, personally, but the man down the road, he really loves his sheep. It eats with him, it sleeps in his bed, he just loves his sheep. He said, and anyway, this guy with all the sheep decides he wants to, he needs to kill some sheep, he needs to sort them out and he needs sheep for sacrifice and that. And instead of taking one of his own, he goes down the road and he nicks the ewe lamb off of this other bloke. David said, such a man should be killed. And Nathan said, that man's you. That's you. You are that man. You are the rich man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you as king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you displeased the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite, with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, in David's killing, David probably justified in his heart, well, I, I'm not killing him, I'm just relocating him to a more dangerous place. But I'm not killing him, it's really not in my hands at all. I mean, if he lives, he lives, if he dies, he dies. I mean, it, it's... it's down to me particularly, and we justify circumstances and we justify our heart, but he wanted him to fail. He wanted him to fail, and it was wrong, and it displeased the Lord. And he also had him killed with the sword of the people of Ammon, and that was an insult to God directly, because the people of Ammon didn't believe in Yahweh. They were trying to, they were killing the Israelites. They were wiping the Israelites out. They were the enemy. And for Uriah to die, one of David's mighty men, which would have got all round the camp to the rest of the army, one of the mighty men of David had been killed. Who? Uriah the Hittite. Who's killed him? The Ammonites. They've, they've, they've done him. They've took him out. Fear comes in. Whoa! 
Where's God in the situation? Why didn't God protect him? Why didn't God save him? And suddenly, the people around you are pointing the finger to God. This is far worse than just a normal murder. It's the way that he was murdered was an insult to God. And God has said to him, I would have given you, you just had to come and ask, why did you try and sort it out yourself? If you were Mandy, you needed another wife. I've got hundreds of wives for you. What do you want? Why did you go and try and solve it yourself and you just dug a bigger hole? That's all you did. You should have come to me. And if David had been able to see himself soberly from the off, if he could just look soberly and say, do you know what? We've got to be able to see ourselves soberly without condemnation. You know, my dad was brilliant at that. He really was. He used to make me laugh. He used to sing this song when I was a kid. Hallelujah, I'm a bummer. Hallelujah, bum again. La, 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 la. And, and do you know what? He had this ability. If he mucked up, he was remorseful, but he, he could just step straight into the arms of God and say, oh, I'm loved by God. It's really amazing to actually see that kind of trait in somebody. Through Nathan's rebuke, we see the root of David's sin. One of the roots of David's sin was ingratitude. He wasn't grateful for all the wives he'd already got. He wasn't grateful for the palace God had given him. He wasn't grateful for this, that and the other. Maybe he began to see it as his own empire. I built this. He lost ingratitude. Ingratitude keeps you at the foot of the cross and it keeps you humble. Gratitude will keep you humble because you know it's not you, you have a grateful heart. And God had blessed him. It shows that David wasn't concerned how things around and the mistakes of in, in his life affected God. And we've got to take that seriously. Your sin doesn't just affect you. My sin doesn't just affect me. It affects God. And we have to take that on board. Our character flaws. You can't turn around and say, well, I'm just that way. Yeah, but people see it. And you claim to be a Christian. There's a bigger picture. And so we have to be careful. David wasn't concerned how his, his uh, actions reflected on God. That's why Malachi says, will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me. You've robbed me in tithes and you've robbed me in offerings, says the Lord. And he was rebuking the Israelites because it looked like God wasn't providing for the Israelites. And he rebuked them and told them off for it. Because it reflected partly on the Lord. All of this actually also highlighted David's struggle with doubting God. And you can say, yeah, but God provided and came through for him. Yeah, but David still doubted God. Yeah, but he was a man after God's own heart. How can you say that he had doubt in God? He doubted. Listen to what David says after escaping from the hand of Saul. 1 Samuel 27 verse 1. It says, 
David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Even though God had promised to protect him, provide for him, make him king of the nation, he'd already been anointed to be king, yet he says in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Oh, he didn't say it verbally, but it's what he thought in his heart. He had a problem with trusting God, and sometimes we have a problem with trusting God. We don't speak it out, but we have fears and insecurities sometimes in certain areas of trusting God. And so what do we do? We try to do it ourselves and ask God to bless it. You know? And sometimes it's not the way round it needs to work. You need to let God to it. But David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. And you see this area of insecurity. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have displeased me. You have taken the wife of you are the Hittite to be your wife, says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up adversity from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour and he shall lie with your wives in sight of this son. For what you did secretly, but what I will do, this thing before all of Israel, before the sun goes down. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin immediately. What? That fast? Shouldn't you make him suffer a bit first? Adulterer, murderer, manipulator, pulled the things of heaven down in disgrace, betrayed the mighty men. First, he needs some sort of punishment, surely. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, in response, immediately said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. Ah, oh, what a God of grace. How mad is that? Surely you should make him feel guilty for a bit first. Surely you should go to the temple with snot and tears and be crying first. Wow. You shall not die. However, be, because by this deed you have done a great uh, occasion to the enemy, of this blasphemy, the child who is born to you shall surely die on this occasion. So there was a consequence. There was a consequence to David's behaviour. And we're forgiven from our sin, but sometimes we face worldly consequences. You know, and sometimes we can think we're not forgiven because we're facing worldly consequences and we think that's God. But there are some things in life, sometimes there's worldly consequences. If you speed, you get a speeding ticket. Even though, like the rest of 
all the Christians on the face of the earth who turn around, that camera goes and you say, oh Lord, please blind it, don't let them send me a thing, please Lord, I'm sorry, make it look blurry, take it away. And God says, yes, you're forgiven, but there's still a consequence. But I won't hold it against you, but now on earth, there's a consequence. But we think maybe God hasn't forgiven us because a few weeks later the fine comes through the door. Oh, I thought God would forgive me. I thought he was going to sort it out. Well, he did forgive you. He did sort it out 2,000 years ago on the cross. This was blasphemy. The enemies of the Lord, it gave them reason to blaspheme the Lord. And an innocent child would die. At long last, David confesses his sin. He doesn't attempt to shift blame or soften the offence by calling it a series of errors or mistakes. He knew it was sin. He knew he'd sinned against the Lord. And we also read that David, that God puts David's sin away from him. David's forgiveness is immediately. When we repent, we are immediately forgiven. Hallelujah. You're actually forgiven before you even repented. In reality. But it's good to confess our sin. And David then turns and looks soberly. Psalm 107. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't just cleanse you, he removes that sin as far as the east is from the west. They can never meet. And he said, no, remember it no more. Now, it's not that God's got a bad memory and forgets, because God doesn't have a bad memory, he doesn't forget. But what he does is basically saying, I, I choose not to recall this ever again. You know, I'm never going to recall it. Now what are you eating? Peanuts. Do you think you're at the cinema? <laughs> Do you know, and in a way, you have a disagreement with your wife or your husband, you always bring up that thing. Didn't you? Yeah, dig it out. Say, yeah, but you've done it before, haven't you? But you forgave me. That's not the point. I'm just reminding you. You know? And we dig out and we throw accusation. That's what God's saying. He said, I'm not going to do that. As far as I'm concerned, I've separated. This will not be coming up in another conversation. I will not be saying, I told you so, you should have learnt from last time. He said, I'm removing this and I choose not to recall it. Okay, so next time you forgive your husband or your wife or your children, that's true forgiveness. And although you might be tempted to recall it, I've forgiven them. This is no longer something needing to be dealt with because it's been dealt with. Psalm 51, another one of David's psalms. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me 
thoroughly for my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. I have done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Verse 16, For you did not desire sacrifice, or else I would have given. Nor you do you delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken, contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And you see the forgiveness. Now we're looking at David, where poor old David. God's forgot his sin, but we haven't, have we? You know, we're always talking about David saying, Don't forget David, don't forget David. And we do it as an example to grow. But when Jesus comes on the scene and you've got all the religious leaders talking about sin, Jesus pulls the rug off of all of them. And he said, you've heard it said before of old that you should not commit adultery. And they're all looking at each other. No, 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 no. We're covered in our religiousness. No, we haven't done it. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman and lusts for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And they went, pants. <laughs> Because Jesus was showing it's a level of sin is sin. Sin is sin. And that's it. And Jesus, in Matthew 5, uh, the, the Beatitudes, he, he highlights God's holiness. Even if you look at a woman lustfully, you had committed adultery with her. And he put it on the same level. Now he was basically saying, God is this holy, this high. To get it wrong a little bit is to get it wrong completely. That's the holiness of God. And we can't justify it. We're, we're you know, because the religious leaders were walking around and saying, well, I've kept the Sabbath and I haven't done this and I haven't done that and I'm a good boy and I, so I deserve X, Y and Z. And Jesus comes along and he wipes all of their good works out the window and he says, even if you've thought of it, that's it. And they're like, what? Who can live like that? No one. That was the point. That was the point. The Ten Commandments weren't there given to, to make everybody live by them. They were given to show everybody they can't live by them. It's a too high a bar. We can't do it because of our humanity. If your white eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you to perish, for one of your members to perish, then your whole body be cast into to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable that one of your members should perish, then your whole body be cast into hell. Now Jesus isn't saying the church should be filled up with mutilated people, <laughs> where we've chopped our hands off and a leg's gone off there and I'll pull my tongue out because I swore last week and pulled my eye out because I looked at that thing which I shouldn't have done. And, you know, the whole body of Christ is mutilated. Oh, look, there's a Christian. You can tell them because they can't walk properly. You know? But Jesus isn't saying to physically do that. It's not a mutilated body of Christ or church. 
but he's encouraging us because guess what? Even a blind, blind man can still lust. A married man can lust. When I, when I got married, I thought that would be the end of lust in my life. Married man, got a wife, never going to have an issue again. You know? We kid ourselves. Jesus was highlighting just the seriousness of sin and that in actual fact the bar is so high. Do we grade sin? Well, what about gluttony? What about gossip? What about neglecting the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body? Not eating properly, not looking after it, not respecting it. What about repressed anger? You're sinning in your heart. Oh, you're not telling everybody what you think of them, but you are in your heart. Oh, if I wasn't a Christian, people would know exactly what I think of them. I've said that. Honestly, I have. I've said before, if I wasn't a pastor, it'd be so much easier. I could tell people to their face exactly what I think of them. And the Lord rebuked me. He said, nothing to do with being a pastor, it's to do with being a Christian. Why do you always win our conversations? Always, let me win one every now and then, surely. Selfishness, pride, bitterness, laziness, resentment, unforgiveness, mishandling the things of God, mishandling the things he gives us, a failure to remember right priorities, a failure to have a thanksgiving heart, a failure to trust him. Loads, you know. We fall short. But if David had confronted the weaknesses early on, nipped it in the bud, it might be a different story. Same for us. If we will confront and judge ourselves soberly, have a relationship with people in the body of Christ that you can trust. Say, where have I gone wrong? Where do you think I'm going wrong? How could I improve? But you're not going to get all, you can't say that about me. Well, don't ask me then. You, you know what I mean? Then how much better we would be. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Isn't that amazing? That you may be healed. Not forgiven, healed, it said. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, life church. And effective. Amen? Powerful and effective. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So often we're so quick to point out people's sin and so slow to help them with it. Rather we cut them off and we think, oh, it's like a disease, it's going to jump on me. You've already got it, mate. It's just manifesting in a different area. That's all. And we should be the body of Christ that is... The, the restoring people. Yes, there might be sin. Do something about that. Help them. Talk to them. Encourage them. Build them up. 
Pray for them. Restore their confidence in the Lord to help them. Pointing out people's failures, does not, it achieves nothing. Nothing is actually achieved. But pointing out the failures and saying, do you know what, I love you enough to be committed enough to help you. Now, if they refuse your help, you've done your, you've done your best. They don't want your help, though you can do no more. Amen.